Hello and welcome to the 5 by This episode, we're traveling the world to bring you games and themes from all over. Stephanie takes us to Japan to meet the mischievous tree spirits of Kadama, while Mike traipses the forests of the world in search of morels and other delicious fungi. Lindsay will be taking us out of the wilds and deep into the inner circles of fine French fashion and Rococo, and before that I'll be exploring the cathedral city of Ulm. But first up, here's Mason, heading off-planet altogether to explore and conquer the universe in Star Realms. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Star Realms. As usual, I have a mountain of qualifiers. Number one, I don't like deck builders. I despise Dominion in particular. Number two, I generally don't care for science fiction-themed games, though I do love sci-fi. Number three, I don't care for zero-sum, winner-take-all games. These are important things to know about my tastes, because Star Realms is a science fiction, winner-take-all, zero-sum deck builder. But I love it. Mostly. Released in 2014, and designed by Rob Doherty and Darwin Castle, and published by White Wizard Games with art by Vito Gesualdi, Star Realms takes elements from games I very much do not like, such as International Cash Cow, Magic the Gathering, and Donald X. Vaccarino's Extremely Unpleasant Dominion, and sort of smashes them together in a way that I find very satisfying. You should know very early on here that Star Realms is extremely cheap. It can easily be had for less than $15, sometimes half that on sale, and it comes in a very pleasant little tuck box that you can throw in a backpack, purse, or coat pocket. Maybe more importantly than that, there is a completely free app for iOS and Android that I would recommend playing before you consider buying the physical version. Okay, so I said I don't like deck builders, but it's mostly that I don't like shuffling every time I have to redraw when playing physical deck builders. I very much enjoy digital implementation of card-based deck builders, specifically Star Realms and, of course, one of my other favorite titles, Ascension. I also said that I don't like sci-fi games, even though I love sci-fi, and that's partially because I generally find sci-fi games to be relatively thin thematically. If they are heavily thematic, the universe they build is often hackneyed, boring, and full of lazy, stupid tropes. Star Realms, like Race for the Galaxy, inhabits a space that's somewhere in between all of this. While its thematic universe isn't particularly innovative or groundbreaking, it's also not unpleasant in any way, and the mechanics mostly overshadow the theme anyway. In Star Realms, you're buying ships and playing them from your hand as a way to achieve the game's goals, as opposed to the goals of the game being directly built around a thematic universe. This is extremely evident given that Star Realms has been adapted into two other games, Cthulhu Realms and Hero Realms, but even if you're not into sci-fi, you'll still find Star Realms an enjoyable mechanical experience. When I'm playing Star Realms, I'm not thinking, oh, if I get all these Trade Federation cards, I'll become more powerful because they bring in prestige from their diplomatic work across the galaxy. I think, the blue cards give me more points. If I get a bunch of them, then when I play them together, I'll get lots more points. I would absolutely still play and recommend this game if it was just called Color Realms and there were no illustrations and it only had text on blue, red, yellow, and green cards. It is mechanically that solid. I also said I don't like winner-take-all zero-sum games where the goal is to destroy your opponent, but in Star Realms, the only way to win is by destroying your opponent. So why do I like it? Confession, I've never actually played it against another person. I have hundreds of plays logged in the app, and recently I've actually been playing through the campaign mode, which is both excellent and brings in a ton of story and theme that you really don't get otherwise. I honestly don't know that I would enjoy playing against another person, because I find two-player destroy-your-opponent games to be kind of depressing. This should come as no surprise, given that I'm fundamentally a Eurogamer, where you start with nothing and then build up to something, and very much not an American-style thematic gamer, where you start with lots of stuff and then everyone destroys each other. Most of the strategy in Star Realms comes from deciding which colors of cards you're going to buy, and then leveraging your deck to get them to work together. To avoid confusion, I'm not going to use any of the faction names in the game because, unless you've played it, you don't care, and also, nah, it doesn't really matter. For instance, 
Red cards mostly let you trash other cards in your discard pile, so having a bunch of red cards lets you shed cards out of your deck. Blue cards give you more points, so it makes it harder for your opponent to destroy you. The yellow cards let you draw more cards, and the green cards give you a huge amount of attack points. That's all extremely generalized, and of course it's much more complex and interesting than that. But depending on the strategy of your opponent, live or digital, you have to make some choices about what kind of cards to buy. As tempting as it is, you can't really just buy one kind of card and still win. You also can't just buy a whole bunch of random junk, because winning is predicated on you having the combination of cards that all affect each other. So box and components. They're fine, nothing special. The base game comes in a tuck box, the cards aren't lit in finish, but like I said, it's at absolute most $15, so what do you expect? Of note, the tuck box will not fit sleeved cards. You may, and probably do, want to sleeve these if you're going to get serious or even just play it semi-regularly. There are a ton of extras for Star Realms. Cool flip boxes, long deck boxes, custom sleeves, promos, and tons of small expansion packs that change elements of gameplay. But do you actually need any of these things? Absolutely not. Star Realms, while in no way perfect, fits into a very pleasant slot in a lot of people's collections, including mine, as well as being a fantastic gift for casual gamers who happen to like sci-fi. I also think it's simple enough that you could gift it to a non-gamer and have them pick it up almost immediately. So who should buy Star Realms? People who love deck builders? People who love hard sci-fi and space battles? People who enjoy simple rules and complex decision trees? People who like engine builders? And people who have played a lot of Dominion and finally realized how impossibly boring it actually is? I give Star Realms 4 out of 4 thematic space empire factions that are actually just red, green, blue, and yellow cards. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter at Mason A. Weaver. Hi there, it's Mike, and today I want to talk to you about morels. My path into designer board games had a few starts and stops along the way, but one of the biggest leaps forward was when I discovered podcasts like RDTN and videos like Rado. I had a smallish but decent collection at the time of gateway games, but I guess the depth and breadth of board games hadn't really sunk in. And while it may seem silly since I own fjords, I hadn't realized there are people designing games specifically for two players. That is until I heard Rado talking about Morales, Two Lanterns, and Brent Povis. Morales is a two-player card drafting set collection game where you are strolling through the woods collecting mushrooms and cooking them for points. And even to this day, I can't help but think about frying up fresh morels in our kitchen in Wisconsin every time we play. In morels, your goal is to collect and cook sets of at least three matching mushrooms for points. You do this by searching the forest, that forest being a set of eight cards laid out between two players. The two cards at the end are always quote-unquote at your feet, and you may choose one of them to add to your hand. A set of two or more matching mushrooms may also be sold for foraging sticks, which allow you to walk past the first two cards and pick deeper in the forest. A single mushroom never does you any good, and you have a hand limit of eight, so be careful what you choose. In addition to the good mushrooms, there are also a few other goodies and one big baddie waiting for you in the forest. Baskets are great because they never enter your hand. They are placed directly in front of you and increase your hand limit by two for each basket you have. Pans are essential. Aside from the one pan you start with, you'll need more pans to cook mushrooms as cooking just one set won't ever win you the game. Technically, pans do affect your hand limit, and you have to take a turn to place a pan from your hand to use for cooking now or later. We, um, maybe fudge that a bit and just play our pans when we get them. Maybe that's why I always lose. Look, it's not my fault there are so many delicious mushroom cards that we just want to get into our hands. And speaking of cooking mushrooms, you can also find butter and jugs of cider in the forest, just sitting there, 
waiting to be picked up and used, and they've clearly not been tampered with, so when you get a set of four or more mushrooms going over the fire, then throw in that butter. Same for cider if you get a set of five or more. You can even mix the two, or add double of one if you get enough mushrooms going, but I've never seen it done. And while adding cider and butter will give you more points for that set of mushrooms, until you use them they just clog up your hand. Maybe that's why I always lose. There are also the nighttime foraging cards. These cards show up in the forest as just moon cards. When you collect one of these cards, you discard it and then take the top card from the nighttime deck. I love the nighttime cards. The art is still mostly the same as the daytime mushroom cards, but the scene painted by Vincent Dorsey always has something just slightly different from the day cards, and I love looking at them. They also count as two cards for selling and cooking, and I never turn down getting a nighttime card if I can. Maybe that's why I always lose. The last cards are the Destroying Angels. Do I really need to tell you these are bad news? When you collect one, you get violently ill and have to discard down to four cards plus two for each basket you have. Even worse, they stick around and affect you for one round per pan of mushrooms you've already cooked. At the end of your turn, no matter what you did, you take the card from the end, put it in the decay, and slide the cards down and replace until eight are showing again. The decay can also never be more than four cards, so if you're about to add a fifth card to the decay, place the current decay into the discard and start a new decay pile. It's inevitable that some good cards will end up in the decay, so instead of taking one of the cards at your feet, you can also take all the cards in the decay. Just look out for destroying angels in there, and remember, you can never exceed your hand limit. The only real complaint I've heard about morales is that sliding the cards to place new ones isn't the most smooth operation. I've never had a big issue with it, but yeah, it's kind of less than ideal. I've just started using the alternative to the conveyor belt layout as posted on BoardGameGeek by Ben Osteen, and I've found it really easy to understand and use. Essentially, the eight-card forest is marching around the decay in a circle. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. So if you dislike the layout in the rulebook, consider trying that. And that's Morales, a very solid game from Two Lanterns Games designed specifically for two players. A peaceful walk in the woods collecting mushrooms and cooking them up for points. All things I love to do. Maybe that's why I always lose. It's so mechanically simple that even a child can play, and mine does. And before you ask, yes, she also beats me at the game. The expansion expands the player count up to four players but I have not played it, so I can't talk about it. But it's likely one I'll pick up eventually. Anyway, if you'd like to discuss morales further, or have any questions or comments about why Cordyceps is my least favorite fungi, you can reach me on Twitter, at Mike Grizzly. Hello 5 by listeners, it's Ruth here. In this episode, I wanted to talk about Ulm. Designed by Gunter Burkhardt, Ulm was published in 2016, with my copy coming from R&R Games, though depending on your location, the publisher information may vary. Ulm asked two to four players to try and get influence in the various districts of the titular German city during the time that their famous church was being completed. Gaining control over a district allows a player to then gain extra points each time any player, including themselves, conducts business in that area for the rest of the game. The other ways of getting points primarily involve gaining and playing cards for endgame bonuses, often based in set collection, and moving your boat further along the Danube that runs throughout the city. So far, none of this sounds particularly different from many other games. But what sets Alm apart is how the game determines which of the five possible actions a player gets to take on their turn. You see, at the core of the game is a sliding puzzle that generates available actions at the start of a turn. The five potential action types are represented by tiles, nine of which are placed in a 3x3 grid in the cathedral square. On a player's turn, they will draw another tile from a bag, 
and then slide it into the grid, pushing a row or column over by one. The three actions that they then get to take are those depicted on the three tiles of the manipulated row still located within the main 3x3 area. Thus, the tile drawn randomly will determine one action through luck, but the other two actions depend on how the player manipulates the board. If a player has gained any Elm Sparrow tokens during the game, they can also turn one in to mulligan the draw and pull a different tile. I really like the puzzly, slight brain-burning but not too intense decision of how to move the tiles, especially since later in the game pushing a row in one direction or another can also have the potential to give opponents some of those precious sparrows. And since some actions are necessary to get the resources needed for others, it can be tough to decide between moving a row that results in at least one action you can't actually take, but another that's pretty impressive, versus pushing a row full of, say, coin actions for a less inspiring turn that will set you up for the next round. Those five available actions include gaining coins to fund contributions to the city, drawing cards that provide a choice of an immediate or endgame benefit, moving your boat along the river, gathering some of the pushed-out tiles, which are also used as a resource in the game, and finally, conducting business in a city district in order to use its special ability. To use the ability of a particular district, however, a player's boat must be adjacent to it on the board. And since boats can only move in one direction, there's a nice tension created between sailing quickly to get more points versus hanging back and risking negative points in order to use the ability of an earlier district more than once. And after 10 rounds of hopefully three actions each, the game will end and points are awarded for those endgame sets or bonus cards, and whoever has the most will be declared the winner. I will note there's also an advanced mode of play, where each round of the game has a randomly determined modification to the roles. I've honestly only ever played Ulm while teaching it to at least one new player, so I haven't tried this version, but it seems intriguing and should add a degree of variety without completely altering the feel of the game. One thing I find interesting about Ulm is it always seems surprisingly short. Players do, after all, get only 10 turns, but the last rounds always seem to sneak up on me before I feel like I've gotten very far, making me scramble a bit in the final turns. But I still really like it, even if I don't have the timing quite right in my head. And honestly, I find this short game length to be a definite plus. You see, Ulm fits really well into that period at the end of the night, when you don't have time for anything too crazy, but it seems silly to jump into a 10 minute game and end up playing it 4 or 5 times. Plus, the game does have a decent degree of luck with the bag draws and the limited card draw, so the shorter playtime makes that stay fun instead of having the randomness outstay its welcome. It's also a really beautiful game on the table. Michael Menzel's art is detailed and surprisingly and refreshingly vibrant for a game set in medieval Europe. Now that being said, I do wish they'd muted the board art at least a little to make the action spaces more obvious, since they can get lost in the art, but it's really only an issue on a first play, and if you can get people past it in a learning game, it's not actually too bad. And the components themselves are fabulous. The tiles are super chunky, which I really appreciate in a game where they're being tossed around in a draw bag. And then there's the cathedral. Alm comes with a punchboard 3D cathedral piece that sits in the center of the city board and acts as a round marker, with the spire being added to in each round. It looks stunning, and it's super eye-catching. However, I will say, every time I play the game, it ends up being moved off of the board and set aside. You see, it actually blocks any players seated on the bottom of the board from being able to see the useful reference printed that tells them important action costs, so you always end up moving it for everybody's sake. 
Alm is a quick playing, easy to teach, light to medium weight euro that really stands out for me thanks to the unique action selection mechanism. It's been a welcome addition to my collection, and one I can see being useful for introducing to new gamers, as well as for finishing off a game night when I'm not quite ready to switch off my euro brain altogether. So until next time, I'm going to be trying not to buy all of the great games discussed by my co-hosts in this episode. But you can find me at sequentialgamer.wordpress.com or on Twitter at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. Here in South Texas, where I live, there's like a five-week period where the weather is just perfect. The muck of winter is gone, and we have yet to enter the point where 100-degree days make you question your life choices. It's these days that I enjoy being out in my yard in the evening, watching fireflies buzz, and enjoying the blooms of the flowers in the beds at my feet and the new growth of the trees above. For a short while, my part of the world feels magical. And it's this magical feeling where everything is just as it should be that keeps me replaying Kodama, the tree spirits, from Action Phase Games. Designer Daniel Solis has done a great job of creating a game about maintaining natural balance. In Japanese folklore, Kodama are spirits that inhabit the trees, and in this game, it's your job to make sure your tree's Kodama are as happy as possible through spring, summer, and fall. At the start of the game, each player randomly picks a tree trunk that will form the base of their own tree. Each trunk will contain one of the six features in the game, caterpillars, fireflies, stars, clouds, flowers, and mushrooms. Players are dealt four Kodama cards, which represent your sweet little spirits that you are aiming to please with your tree throughout the game. Then, one card is chosen from each of the three spring, summer, and fall decree decks, and placed face down. Finally, four community cards branches are played face up for all players to see. The decree for the first season is revealed, and players learn what bonuses each player can earn that season. Then play begins. Each turn, players will, in order, draft a card from the branches available and play it to their tree. Points are awarded for the number of features that appear on the card they just played that are also repeated on consecutive cards leading back to the trunk. There are really only two rules when it comes to placing your cards and earning points. Number one, cards can't overlap more than one card, nor can any feature be covered. And two, you can't play a card that would cause you to score more than 10 points for that turn. Each player takes four turns each season, and at the end of each of the three seasons, players also curry the favor of one of their Kodamas to earn as many extra points as possible. Whoever ends up with the most points at the end of the game wins. The gameplay is perfectly simple, but it's just puzzly enough, especially when your tree grows a bit unwieldy and you're trying to figure out just where you can place your next card with maximum effect. The randomization of decree cards, plus your individual Kodama cards, set this game up for a lot of replayability. That 10-point cap per turn so often has held me to placing a card and taking a meager two or three points, but it's also one of the things I love most about the game. Little chance of one person jumping to an early lead because of the luck of the draw. The box boasts that this is for ages 14 and up, but I think it'd be perfectly fine for as young as nine or 10. The game plays two to five players, and while in terms of gameplay, it scales really well, I do want to warn you that 
even with just two players, it takes up a decent amount of table space. You want to make sure that you're set up with room to grow. Lastly, no review of mine would be complete without commenting on the aesthetic, and Kodama does not disappoint in this category. Quan Chai Maria's illustrations are charming and evocative, and there's a certain joy at the end of the game seeing your completed tree, branches outstretched, framed by the indigo evening sky. Kodama, the tree spirits, has an MSRP of about $19.99, and it's not often you find a game that is so well-designed at this price point. This game is an absolute must-have for your collection if you are, like me, a fan of quirky, light-hearted games that you can bring to the table over and over again. This game is an absolute must-have for your collection if you are, like me, a fan of light quirky games that you can bring to the table over and over again. For the 5 by, I'm Stephanie Stone-Rob, and until next time, stay playful. Hello, it's Lindsay here, and this episode I'm going to be entangling you in the world of Rococo. It's designed by Stefan and Louis Moles and Matthias Kramer. My copy is published by Pegasus Spiel, with artwork by Michael Menzel. It's a 2-5 to play game that lasts for around 60 to 120 minutes. I was weighing up which games to discuss this episode when Rococo popped up in my Twitter feed. A Twitter buddy mentioned this game can sometimes be found in great game bad theme lists, which rather surprised me. So then I decided to talk about why Rococo is indeed a great game, and why the theme is actually pretty fab, but ultimately it shouldn't really matter. For anyone who is not familiar, Rococo is a kind of worker placement, area control, deck builder hybrid, themed around making clothes for a 17th century ball over the course of six rounds. Each turn you start with a hand of three cards that you can choose from your deck, a lace, yarn and some money. You have three types of workers depicted on the cards, apprentices, journeymen and masters. These cards allow you to take various actions on the board, such as buy material, either cloth or accoutrements, make an item of clothing using your material or money, then either sell in the costume for money or place it on a guest and put them in one of the halls. Most cards have an additional action as well as the one you choose to take, and some workers can only take certain actions. During the game you may accumulate prestige points, and these are tallied up at the end of the game for the amount of outfits you have, which areas of the board you're most present in, and a few extra bonuses which I'll discuss later on. I really enjoy Rococo for the deck building element, because it's a little different. You're building a deck using your masters to hire further employees, only you choose which cards to use each round. As you cycle through the deck, some rounds will be better than others in terms of what cards you can choose. And I really like the rounds when all three cards are your choice. I must confess though, it's taken me a long time to get my head around the concept. I'm so used to the classic deck building mechanic, but I still have a mental block with it, so I'll start riffle shuffling for no good reason and then wonder what the hell I'm doing. The area control aspect is very enjoyable. When you and your opponent start jostling for space on the holes to receive the best end of game points, that's where the fun really is. It's not an overly complex game, but there is so much to do in Rococo that you can't possibly achieve it all. So there's a lot of balancing, many excruciating decisions to be made. And it is actually excruciating. Where I've played this mostly two-player, you don't have a lot of time to mull over your turns. It's a bit more rapid fire. And on occasions, I've sat with my head in my hands and cried, I don't know what to do, because it always seems like you're sacrificing one thing for another, and you're really aware that your actions you take will have a knock-on effect. A few examples of head-in-hands decision-making. Do you make an outfit now? Or wait till it moves to a more inexpensive spot. Which hole should you put a guest in? Should you try and dominate one, or break your opponent's control of another? If you spend a huge amount of income on decorations, will you fulfil the accompanying conditions in time? Which material should you buy? What outfit are you planning on making? What do you need more? Yarn, lace or cloth? What to do, what to do. 
This is actually one of the reasons I like the game very much. There's so much to do and a limited amount of actions to do so. I can imagine for sufferers of analysis paralysis, this could be a nightmare waiting to happen. It also is worth mentioning that Rococo is language dependent. So there are many symbols you either have to remember or keep checking up on, which can get a little bit grating. I have some Rococo tips to share. If you can get on the fountain spaces early on, you'll automatically start earning more income, and income is really important in the game. Making and selling an expensive outfit in the first round, as opposed to placing it in a hole, will get you off to a good start. I like to hire a couple of masters fairly swiftly to get my deck up to scratch, and then start putting my guests in the holes as soon as possible. The top row is where all the big points are, and if you can get one of the higher multipliers on the balcony spots, or perhaps several, then if you've missed out on other areas, you can really rake in some points there at the end of the game. The statue is really great for bonus points, but you'll need to ensure you make dresses of each colour if you want to fulfil it, which is actually a lot harder than it sounds when other players keep nabbing the outfits and materials you need. There is an expansion called Jewelry Box, which I love the idea of, but I never seem to enjoy the game as much when we play with it, which kind of defeats the point for me. This includes training cards where you can train your apprentices to journeymen and journeymen to masters and you have to complete tasks with your workers in order to upgrade the card. For this you get an additional card to hire. It just seems like a bit too much hard work for not much payoff, but maybe I haven't played it enough to see the benefits yet. The jewellery is only available to purchase when you buy a space on the jewellery box and then you can buy matching coloured jewellery for your outfits which are cautionary money to do but it does earn you more income in the long run. The thing I find when you have a game like the Coco is there's so many options available to you as it is, it just seems a trifle unnecessary to even have an expansion. But I'm sure some people would welcome the change, and I'm not really faulting it for adding something more to the game, I just feel that maybe then there's a bit too much to it. I guess I should end this by telling you that in my opinion, the theme is really inconsequential. It's a great game with interesting mechanics, so much decision making, and overall design just works really well. So if the theme is putting you off, don't let it. It's a theme like any other, and if the game is good, the fact that the theme is a little frivolous shouldn't put you off. Obviously it doesn't suit everyone's taste, and that's fine. Not every game is for everyone. But I don't think it's fair to class it as a bad theme. I think we're at the point now where games involving a fashion clothing aspect shouldn't really be considered feminine. That seems like a bit of silly nonsense to me, and just a bit of an outmoded perspective. If you want to see and hear more from me, you can visit my Instagram and YouTube, Shiny Half Meeples. Or pop on my blog, www.shinyhavemeeples.blog.wordpress.com. Or follow me on Twitter, capital S, capital H, Meeples. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the 5 by If you'd like to follow us, please do on Twitter at 5 by Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 by Games. Join our BGG Guild at number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or just follow all the links you can find on 5 by Games.com.